outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. And since we've no place to go, let it snow, let it snow, let it Welcome snow. Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And we're in the middle of the great Northeast blizzard right now. Yeah, we are actually, uh, what, maybe like four miles Yeah, something like that. Apart, something like that. Maybe fewer. Like on a nice day, we could bike to each other's houses. But today we're 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 recording remotely because there's a lot of snow out there. Baby, it's cold outside. Baby, it is cold outside. How are the roads out by you? Uh, Well, I haven't actually been out on, but the main roads seem to be clear. And uh, but I did shovel my driveway, and it was like shoveling concrete. It's a nice, lovely mixture of ice and snow and sleet and. You know, um, air pollution, I guess, as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. Uh, so we have chosen for the public good to record remotely. Uh, yeah. Our bl- but we didn't. Know, we knew some of you would want to hear from us in the blizzard, just concerned that the bunker is intact. Are we just basically talking about Josh? You really want to hear from us, <laughs> Josh? Maybe, maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe, Josh. Maybe. All right, I'm sure. Uh, if any of the rest of you actually are happy, we did this. Let us know. Let so. us know. We'd be thrilled to hear from you. And if you're not happy, just just ignore us. We'll be fine. And thank you for the comments about our podcast and uh, the Zacchaeus option stuff. So, uh, you know, that was very kind. Yeah, and your your article and has gotten a lot of attention. I've gotten some good attention. Yeah, and I felt like our conversation yesterday was incredibly helpful for me to flesh some of that stuff out like further. And it's just a nice. Uh, yeah, it was good. It was good that it could all kind of come in the same day too. Yeah, yeah, and actually, and, and there was an editorial by David Brooks on the on the <laughs> on the Benedict. Yeah, and also if you have time, Bill and I have put some thoughts out there. And if you want to hear some other stuff, David Brooks has also <laughs> put some stuff out there. I mean, yeah, I mean, if you want, I mean, we've said it all. I mean, if you have a little extra time after you've said, yeah, <laughs> yeah we we weighed in on the topic, right? So, uh, so, so, Dave, I, do you think he was? I, I think he probably stole from us some. What do you think? Well, of course. Come on. Come on. <laughs> no, I, I enjoy so, David, David Brooks. Yeah. And now we are, because we are remote. Yes. Remotely recording. I thought it would be appropriate for us to talk about love and the remoteness of God. Yeah. Yeah. As we continue to work our way through Halleck's book. And actually, um, I, think I, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast, but I'm teaching homiletics to a group of um, master students, Buddhist, and uh, they've had a tradition at this, uh, the one institute of inviting Christian professors to come in and teach homiletics. And uh, it's been an interesting experience. So I, I thought some of this discussion about the remoteness of God and just where I'm, you know, you know, part of what I'm doing right now is, is very interesting to me. When you go on to glory, I'm going to bronze your resume. <laughs> I mean, assuming I don't go first, but I'm just saying. I mean, you've done a lot of interesting things. This yeah. is one of this is yet another thing. Yeah, yeah. And where is the seminary? The seminary is in Glenside. It's part of a uh, the one Institute. There's an acupuncture school there that has a lot of students, and uh, they also have a, I think, traditional Chinese medicine school. Oh, when you well. said Glenside, Pennsylvania, I just assumed Westminster was sponsoring it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a track. It's the Buddhist track. Uh, and uh, you have uh, you can't be a woman, but you can be a Buddhist and go there. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, you know, and be a you know raving lunatic, you know, like you and me. And <laughs> yeah, no. 
So, um, yeah, he, he, I thought, frankly, he went a different way than I, I didn't expect this next move in this book about talking about, uh, actually, again, he refers to Nietzsche, and then he mentions Meister Eckhart, and then apparently at one stage in his journey, he spent some time studying Zen. Yeah, as did Merton, and it's the hotel rooms you have to watch, because Merton died yeah. in a hotel room in Thailand, right? Or- yeah, he had he he was either getting ready. Did he? It was right before he met the Dalai Lama, or right after he met the. Yeah, Dalai he plugged in like a weird electric fan. And went in into his room, baths. Yeah, and so it, yeah. And it shorted him out or something. Yeah, he, yeah, it's uh, it's a thing of conspiracy theories as well. So uh, if you ever look it up online, just be careful because there's all kinds of, uh, yeah, I think uh, it's such tr- such a tragedy and such a strange timing. But uh, yeah, so it's uh, yeah, you think he, it was Opus Day. <laughs> yeah, no. But it was the albino monk from the yeah, Vinci Code. It was the Vinci Code. It was Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks yeah. did it. He was trying to save him and tripped. So, anyway, so this idea, well, um, you know, the idea that um, that we, as we've been saying, uh, and as we've been following him, part of how he deals, or how he approaches the contemporary time we live in, is saying that actually... You know, atheism, contemporary atheism, are the are the, you know, the idea that God is not, uh, you know, he's not in the clouds, he's not in the same way that we at this pre-modern person thought. Uh, that actually, the absence of evidence of God uh, is a point of piety. And so, how do you how do you talk about this in terms of the seeming um, unknowability of God, and yet the fact is that we say as Christians and we believe that God is love. Yeah, you know, I think the first paragraph of this chapter I found uh, helpful, weighty. Um, at one point, on one level, on one hand, it, it frames the unique, you know, the, the, what feels unique in our age, and yet also generalizes our age. You know, the, it's he says in every age, the task of the theologian is to reveal the Christian concept of God as a linking of transcendence with imminence, a linking of God's hiddenness, otherness, and remoteness with God's incredible closeness. Experience of an age when God seems not to be present offers dizzying scope for demonstrating the first of those two poles, but it is also a challenge to reveal his closeness in a fresh and more radical way and unmask false closeness or the closeness of false gods. Mm. I, I think that it is an incredible statement and, and and one that i mean you know when we sing hymns from like the 16th or 17th century you know we're singing the top 10 you know like <laughs> you know like and there's a reason we sing like you know contemporary things and things like that and classics and but that paragraph is one for the ages i mean that right there is whatever cultural trends whatever shape they take in the coming years i mean that is a paragraph that will stand the test of things, I think. Yeah, no, I I agree 100%. You know, he goes on to talk about, and I think part of how he fleshes that out, is he says, for instance, he says, a scientific atheist uh, can help us think about the transcendence of God. Yeah. Yeah, because we get, you know, we, we get kind of God out of the materialistic box that sometimes not only ancient religions put him in, but also, um, you know, also piety. There's a, there's a real tendency for piety to put God in a particular box. And so 
when a scientific atheist who tells us no, it's you know, it's not God isn't causing every particular thing that happens. Uh, even the idea that even humanity itself um, got to its present state that there's a there's you can you can look at how we got here without a God in the picture um, points to the idea that God is a transcendent God. I mean, that we can use that as a point of departure, not as a point of attacking, but really a way of trying to, as he said, or I think we quoted last week, a way of getting away from a kind of unenlightened primitive fundamentalism. Yeah, and I think that, you know, when Kant says something like, I've used reason to make room for faith, that's like the extreme end of the transcendence. Although, again, I think Kant was really sincere there. Right. But I think that Halleck would say, without being in tension with the imminence of God. And I love that phrase again. I just love that phrase that, that uh, it, an unmasked false closeness or the closeness of false gods. I mean, I think that what Halleck would say is for real vibrant faith, you know, what pa- pa- uh, Pascal calls, you know, not the God of the philosophers, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You need a real closeness, not an idol or just an echo of the worst of your subjectivity, but but what's really deep, the stuff he says about Augustine with memory. Yeah, memoria. I, yeah. I, I, I thought that was, he says basically what Augustine is talking about is not just a past recollection, but something like Young talks about these, yeah. these a memory that's almost a shared human collective memory. Like, it, it's, it is the territory where the soul comes right up against God. Yeah, I thought that was incredibly profound. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I I had to write, uh, I had to write on Memoria and in seminary on Augustine's view of that. Yeah, and and I would maybe maybe Jung <laughs> maybe it goes the other way. You know, Jung gets his idea from from at least the Augustinian, or at least oh, yeah, the, <laughs> right. Yeah. right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that, so, and then I think he goes on to talk about, and from a secular humanist, we can at least learn in part. Uh, the eminence of God. Now, you know, he says making humanity an idol is um, is is not uh, you know no, we we have no God but the God the the one God. So making humanity an idol goes back to that was the problem of uh, of Genesis three. So uh, that's where secular humanism and Christianity would depart. But this idea of a of a radical concern for individuals. See, I, to me, and again, I'm, I'm this I'm not purposely getting political here. But I, I, for the life of me, I don't know how these people who claim to be deeply, deeply Christian folks who, who, who talk, you know, that their whole life is shaped by their faith, I don't get how, as politicians, they continue to pass legislation that hurts the least of these. You know, in other words, it goes totally against uh, the very core of, of, of what being a Christian is. And so there, I think in some levels that there is a lot of Christianity that has lost its humanism. Uh, and I think as Christians, we should be the most humanist of all. Yeah. And I feel like on our political landscape too, it, things are so reified that we reify the false closeness so much or the closeness of false gods, maybe the closeness of false gods in the special interest on all sides and then false closeness in the sense of things are so tribal and social media just reifies some of our base shadows that like nobody can just can say, I don't know where I was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, that, cause that's anathema. I mean, we, we view arrogance and we view the bullshitting politicians do as, is terrible and contemptible, but even worse, 
Once a politician said, yeah, I was bullshitting there. I was wrong. Well, that's even worse. <laughs> yeah, no, we should, they should be able to say that. You know? Yeah, and, and it was healthier, healthier times when everybody would you know, say something and wink, and you knew they were, it was politics. They weren't trying to say that this is, this is reality. And, but I do think the sense of, um, you know, people forget, and again, uh, a concern about humanity was really part of the ground of the Reformation, you know, and uh, a return to a, a kind of sense of humanity um, was, was part, of, a part of what fueled the Reformation. And I would again argue uh, one of the great periods of Roman Catholicism. I mean, Thomas Aquinas, the humanism of Thomas Aquinas is something that well, the neo-Thomists are still people who talk that way. So I think that's a really interesting thing to me rather than – and again, it's it's funny that, you know, we've said this before, but with the scientists, we can say all truth is God's truth. And, you know, with the humanist, you know, we can echo First John and say, you know, how can you say you love the invisible God when you haven't loved your brother in front of you? Uh, yeah. yeah. And so I think I, – I think it's just interesting that, you know – uh, he keeps actually bringing us back to very basic Christian and biblical principles, and he does it in the in a context that's that's conversant with what's going on in the world. Yeah, and there's this great passage where he says he's talking about the Jewish thinker Pinchas Lapide, who I have no idea who that is. This is my first encounter, but maybe Leo Leibowitz knows who this is because he reads a, a lot of stuff. Not just Jewish, but, you know, the guy has a library in his brain. But the Jewish thinker Pinchas Lapide also considers that there are f- far fewer real atheists than people think, because the atheist label applies essentially to three groups of people to whom that designation, whether applied to them by others or chosen by themselves, really does not appertain. The first are anti-clericals who object to so-called God's administrators who hold God <laughs> responsible for everything that his earthly personnel commit. Yeah, I, I, those are, for those of us in this profession, those, those folks are always fun. They're just real fun. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. <laughs> the second group consists of pseudo-atheists who are angry at the caricature of God that they were made to believe in at home or at school, and that has nothing to do with the longing for faith that moves their hearts. The third group, in Lapidae's view, is specific to Judaism. <laughs> These are anti-theists who argue with God, like Job did, because they are unwilling to countenance evil in the world, or struggle with him, like Jacob, who, through grappling with God, received the name Israel. Even, though, even they are not atheists, according to Lapidae, because atheism is the attitude when one yawns in God's face. Mm. Lapidae believes that real atheism is what I would call apathyism, apathy toward God. Yes, even in respect of interpersonal relations, we could state that the real opposite of love is not hate, which is often the expression of that ambivalent emotion we call love-hate, hmm. but rather indifference or twisted love. Yeah, I think that's, that's a fascinating section, he says. And I, and, I, and I agree with it. I mean, I remember uh, J. Christian Becker saying that there were three atheists in the Bible. And uh, he, I think he, Job, Jeremiah... And Jesus. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, meaning all three of them at one point at the other spoke into the absence of God. But though he slay me, yet I will serve him. And thy, yeah. will, and thy will be done. Yeah. No, it's a fascinating idea. I think I, that's, a, that's, a, that's a beautiful passage. Yeah. And the other thing I, I really liked a lot was he talked about um, 
in light of, I think the, he talks about some of his experiences in mysticism and, and uh, he says, you know, at the moment in modern times, starting with Descartes, when reality was separated into subject and object, God was made homeless. It was then logical for atheism to say there is no God. God is not, is truly not to be found in a world viewed that way because God is neither an object, a thing amongst things, a being among beings, or even part of the human subject. God is not simply our idea, emotion, concept, or fantasy. But this form of God's absence from the object-subject world need not necessarily be interpreted atheistically. There's another possible interpretation, namely the encounter with God's hiddenness and intangibility, God's transcendence. The encounter with God's transcendence is only the first word, however. Christian theology always seeks the complementary pole, the experience of God's imminence, the closeness of God. And that's where he, he, he pulls the Meister, Meister Eckhart, um, yeah. or the Bonhoeffer, but you know, saying it's, it's, it's like a paraphrase of Eckhart, the God who is does not exist. Yeah, yeah, our God's not out there. Yeah. Yeah. There's a great um, legend of, um, from Jewish mysticism, uh, Rabbi Akiva, who's a uh, famous rabbi who was a martyr during Hadrian, uh, but he's often a character in these uh, Jewish mystical stories, many of them you know, much later, but uh, we actually don't totally know when they come about. Um, but there's a story where four rabbis um, went to the seventh heaven. Okay. I think it was seventh heaven. It may have not been that high, but they, I, think it, I think it was up to highest heaven. And, what heaven do you think you'll make? Uh, I, I think I think I'm in the I'm certainly in the outer suburbs. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think I'm I'm right across the border from purgatory. I think is hopefully where I'll. I think I don't want to be higher than level two because if you go above level two, then you're middle management, which is <laughs> a lot of stress. Of course, if uh, as. <laughs> Of course, if you if you do the uh, architecture of Dante, all seats are equally good. Right. That's why I'm figuring God will figure out. So if I'm in the bleachers, I'll still have a good seat. Yeah, I think there are there are no bad seats in heaven. But anyway, these four rabbis um, have this the you know they have this encounter. They get to see, I guess the um, the bottom of the train. You know, kind of like uh, Isaiah or Ezekiel. But anyway, um, one immediately dies. It just kills them. Another goes insane. One becomes an apostate, and he later on is a character in some of the other rabbinical stories. And then one becomes a saint. Mm. And, I, and I think there's something in that about uh, the inherent hazards of uh, thinking you know who God is, and then having that either actually seeing who God is and being disappointed, you know the apostate, or God turns out to be something beyond what you thought, and it, it kind of drives you into kind of a spiritual insanity. I, I do think part of the anti-intellectualism of so much of, uh, I would say American Christianity, because that's what I am, uh, I, think, I think part of it is a fear. I think there is part of it that there's a fear that they might find out something they don't want to know. And, uh, and part of, I think, what's, what's great about Halleck is, no, it's actually in the very process of unknowing. Um, it's sometimes in the very, very moments when we feel the absolute absence of anything that we may actually be, that we may be as close as we can be. Well, and I think that it's, it's also the, the anti-intellectual, anti-intellectualism, a lot of Western atheism 
not a lot, a certain pop brand that. Yeah, no, you're right. Doesn't doesn't read, you know, like or tend to certain mystical intellectual traditions because, again, of a fear that God would be something different and would have to reorganize their own categories. I mean, I feel like we're all in this, uh, all people in relationship to like the telos of the God of love are afraid. Just, I mean, we're ch- children of Adam and Eve, I guess. We hear and we hide. Yeah. And we all hide in different ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, I remember one person uh, who actually came to me one time for a spiritual conversation. And um, this person uh, said, you know, I don't like the New Testament. And I I said, and this was a Christian. And I said, I said, I said, why? Because God's too easy on people. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) She wanted her God. She wanted her God like her to get their pound of flesh anytime they could. And uh, I don't know if it's, you know, we, uh, there aren't too many people that are that bold, but I, I do think there's a certain segment also that we don't, you know, we we equate God's being loving as like we've done our duty, and uh, you know we we need to get our we need <laughs> we 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 need to be treated uh, deservedly, and so if this overemphasis of love just means that God just if God loves everybody equally, then what's the point? You know, that's sometimes something I've heard people almost almost say that. Hmm. And that's sad. I think that's very tragic. Um, and um, that's maybe part of the reason why a lot of our theology doesn't trickle down to our to our humanity. We have trickle-down theology in yeah. the worst sense. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, the conclusion of this chapter, which I loved, you know, and this is, I think, his own confession in some level. He says, I have no wish to fall prey to apocalyptic moods. But sometimes I really can't help feeling that all three of them have gradually found, f- foundered in the shallows. He's talking about different things in the history of Western thought. And now all we have available are just little lifeboats and possibly only very little time to decide what to salvage from the, the, the sinking ships. Now, this sounds almost Benedict option in its tone. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. Right? And then he says, to act as if nothing was happening could have fatal consequences. To think that any of the boats is is repairable or what we can salvage or that we can salvage anything would seem naive to try to cut our losses and let everything that was on board sink to the bottom of the sea would be irresponsible. Old Noah was better off. (laughs) He had, he had taken time to prepare for the flood and had God to advise him what to take and leave behind as well as a promise that his ark would survive the deluge. The Lord hasn't given us any such advice. And if he did, we wouldn't have taken too much notice. And then he says, you know, we won't agree on what's worth saving. Uh, and then he, what he says that he, he would salvage from postmodernity is a sense of plurality and perspectivism of human knowledge that modern critical reason gave us, that we all should doubt our doubts and, and maybe take other people's beliefs seriously, that we, 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 ought to not, we ought to be a little suspicious of ourselves and maybe a little more uh, credulous toward <laughs> other people. Um, uh, and then he says, you know, it's not possible to save everything, but let's not let the Bible go under either. <laughs> it's especially not the Ten Commandments or the parables and Beatitudes. He says, from the rich library of philosophy and theology, let's save negative theology 
which grew out of the depths is saying, you know, maybe the way we need to approach God is by what God is not, uh, primarily then by positive language of what he is. And he says it's essential uh, in the tool. It's an essential tool in the battle against idolatry. And then he says, maybe with the theology of tomorrow, that Kierkegaardian inspired philosophical reflection of the experience of faith as a specific life orientation pervading every aspect of human existence should retain and develop above all is the mystery of the Trinity. That that paradoxical union of plurality and singularity. Our future theology should definitely not lose sight of the Trinity in heaven and on earth. It should encourage deep thinking about God, who is the unifying basis of all plurality, the Trinity, and also about how the triune nature of God is reflected in the triune experience of Christians in their faith, hope, and love. Mm. I, I, I found, again, and if there's anything to our little Zacchaeus option here, I felt like if that's uh, if we were thinking the other day and reflecting upon suggestions for an ecclesiology for our times, uh, this is I, I feel like some of th- what he says there is the theological intuition and wisdom that would undergird that communal practice and mission in the world. I mean, I I, I just I was incredibly moved by that. Yeah, yeah. No, I I I think it is. Um... You know, I, I think there are some reasons to feel apocalyptic, not in the uh, Left Behind series kind of way, but uh, that the very grounds of what have sustained thought, have sustained, have sustained culture, um, the very ground which have sustained the faith. And particularly, let's look at the Reformed faith. I mean— Reform- and also, let's not forget that Hugh Jackman is not going to play Wolverine anymore. Well, right. That's, so that yeah. I mean, that's a big one too. I mean, <laughs> what, what's going to be the X Men franchise? Yeah. <laughs> but I think you know it's interesting the fact that um, fundamentalist evangelical Christians don't know the Bible anymore, um, and 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 the Bible doesn't seem to to in its wholeness affect politics and. Uh, a concern for what's going on in society, and you know, and I say that as someone who spent most of their life in a mainline denomination that had jettisoned that concern long ago. So for me, it was more discouraging. It's been more discouraging to see different versions of a uh, a different kind of secularism, but nonetheless one as um, contrary to the faith arise. In uh, the place, uh, the the tribe that taught me the Bible, for which I'm forever thankful. Yeah, and I even, but I think though that what he says about the Trinity, and the, the, the part of me that is a student of Karl Barth bristles a little bit at it, but not too much because I'm not a Bardian. But uh, I, but I love that the Trinity, not just in heaven but on earth. And so you think of someone like all legends qualified, but Saint Patrick, who you know, there's no Bible for this Druidic people right and yet is able to find the you know faith hope and love in his own soul and to sow it among a people and maybe help develop a great civilization because despite you know snap judgments to the contrary i would guess as it seemed on the ground uh the god the triune god was active not just in heaven but on earth even with those people who didn't know the name yeah, and and you know Celtic spirituality and Christianity may actually be a bridge, a bridge movement for the age we live in. 
Well, as we learned as kids, three is a magic number. Bill, I would invite you to an Irish pub right now if we were not snowed in. There are several very close. But... Well, we will get that in this week in honor of the good St. Patrick. Absolutely.
Enjoy the silence.